0: All right, well, good morning again. It's good to see all of you. Uh, we're going to be on page 873 in the Bibles around you. That's Luke chapter 14. As We continue our way through the book of Luke. Have you ever been invited to a dinner party or just over to someone's house or something like that? And it wound up turning into uh, an interrogation. I've had a couple of these in my life where I showed up somewhere and it wound up being an interrogation. One of them was uh, pretty quick after Sarah and I got married. Uh, we'd, you know, taken jobs straight out of college in Atlanta. We had an apartment in Decatur and she'd made friends, uh, with a, a lady at work and we decided to have this lady who was a bit eccentric. She was a bit odd over for dinner and bring her boyfriend with her who we had never met. She's odd. She's eccentric. Never met this guy. What could go wrong? <laughs> so well, there we are. They, they show up and they come into the house. It's New Year's Eve. I'm just, you know, excited about celebrating ringing in the new year. It's going to be 2003 that night. And they walk in and uh, very quick. It's hey, I'm Joe. And hey, I'm Andrew. And then sit down, Joe. I, 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 let's, let's talk for a minute. What are your dreams and aspirations in life? What, what is it that you're struggling with? What do you want to do with your life? What is your strategy for life? Where do you want to go? What are your goals? What are your aspirations? I was like, my goal, my dream right now would be for you to leave. <laughs> right? We haven't even talked about the weather yet. This is not protocol. You are going way too fast. And it just continued to be a very, very awkward night uh, when they left that night. <laughs> I told Sarah, I was just like, that guy. That, that That is too much. That that guy is too much. When we get into Luke chapter 14, we find Jesus in a not that dissimilar of a situation where he's at a dinner party and it turns into an interrogation. Now, I wanted out. I wanted to get away from there. I started fantasizing that in our third story apartment that we I had a job of the hut trap door that would drop this guy out if I hit it. I wanted him out of there. But Jesus, he sticks in it. He stays in it. He doesn't want out. And and he turns the conversation into kind of an interrogation of their hearts. And he's not coming after them because he's vindictive. He's coming and talking kind of aggressively towards them because he loves them and he wants them to come to know who he is, to know his grace, to know his mercy, to know his love. And so he comes at them with some pretty aggressive words. That we're going to look at this morning, but we're not looking at these so that we can get some tips for how to argue. We're looking at these so that we can see his heart. His heart for people who are missing it. Like we do, even those of us who are believers, still sometimes a lot of times we get satisfied, like C.S. Lewis put it, with mud pies when he's offering us a holiday at the sea. We get satisfied with trying to climb a two-foot ladder when He's offering us an escalator to heaven. And so we're going to take a look at this out of Luke chapter 14, seeking to learn some lessons from this rebuke that Jesus lays down on the self-righteous religious establishment of His day. And He tees off on them on three major points. He goes after them about the Sabbath. And he goes after them about their lack of humility and then about guests, like the party guests at this dinner party that they've got. And so Luke chapter 14, let's take a look at this page 873 in the Bibles around you. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The way the book of Luke breaks down, chapters one through nine are all about who Jesus is. The later chapters are all about what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. And in the middle, he's journeying journeying to Jerusalem and his disciples are following him there. And as they're following him physically, he's teaching them what it means to follow him spiritually. So they're on the way to Jerusalem. He gets invited to a dinner party on the way. Here we go. Luke chapter 1, verse 14. One Sabbath. So note that. It's a Sabbath. One Sabbath... When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold... There was a man before him who had dropsy, all right? And that's just an old school term basically for edema. So this is a guy who's probably in congestive heart failure. His tissues are swelling. They're they're hanging on to fluids. Uh, he's probably very, very near death. And so the Pharisees have brought this guy into the dinner party, not because they give a rip about him, all right? Not because they want to see him healed by Jesus, but because they're setting Jesus up. All right, says verse one, they're watching him carefully. They're trying to get something for which they can like go after Jesus and accuse him. Because according to them and their way of thinking, Jesus has already violated the Sabbath multiple times by healing people, casting out demons, picking some wheat. And so they want to trap him in this environment, see him do it right in front of them. And so they call this guy in. To use him as bait because they know Jesus will care for this man. They don't care about this guy. He's just bait to them. All right. And so verse three, that's that's what they've set up. So Jesus sees them and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And so Jesus just puts the onus back on them. They've they've set up around the Sabbath. I'm not making this up. They've set up thirty nine. The Pharisees set up thirty nine different rules that you had to work really hard to keep to honor the Sabbath. All right, so they set up these rules outside of God's law, just these man-made rules with crazy things like you could take 1,999 steps on the Sabbath, but not 2,000. That was a violation. So the Fitbit walk on the Sabbath, that's out. So you've got all these rules that are far beyond God's law. And so when Jesus asked them this question... Is it right to heal or not? Well, they obviously can't say yes because that would violate their rules and they're trying to trap Jesus here. But they also recognize that they can't say no lest they appear to be the absolute uncaring jerks that they really are. Because even they realize that it's one thing to condemn Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, but it's a whole different ballgame to deny the healing of a dying man. And so they can't answer. So verse four. But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. And so what's happening here is they've completely missed the point of the law. They would treat an ox better than they would treat this dying man. That's how they see the law. They've missed the entire point of the law, which is to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what the whole law is pointing to. That's how it can all be summarized, Jesus says in Matthew 22. And so they've missed that. All right? And the, the Sabbath, is to be honored it's part of the moral law that's still in effect ceremonial and civil have been fulfilled by Jesus moral law still in effect and so it's still on us today as a gift this is straight Ten commandments and so it's to be honored all right but it's a day that is to be honored rightly and that's going to be number one in your notes honor the Sabbath. Rightly, the Pharisees had jacked it up. So number one, honor the Sabbath rightly. When I was a kid growing up in Pine Log, Georgia, the cardinal sin was mowing your grass on a Sunday. Now, on Saturday, you could be chain smoking three sheets to the wind and your whitey tidies on your snapper comet. But don't you dare mow on Sunday. That was fine. And that is not a hypothetical picture. I've seen him. He also had, bless his heart, he also had old toilets in the yard with flowers growing in them. (laughs) But where does this idea come from? All right? This idea of the camp mow on Sunday and, and these rules around the Sabbath, it comes from a poor understanding of the Sabbath. An understanding of the Sabbath like that of the Pharisees. An understanding built on self-righteous legalism. Where you take a blessing that God has given and you strap a bunch of man-made rules to it and turn it into a burden. That's what self-righteous legalism always does. It takes blessings and it turns them into burdens. And so the blessing of the Sabbath, all right, is this, that God in his grace has given us a day where we can stop doing, 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 doing and just be. And it's based upon the creation account and the fact that God rested on the seventh day, which think about it is a little bit weird theologically because God doesn't need to rest. Yet he does which should probably say something to us about our lives. He doesn't need to take a rest, but he does. He should probably speak to us. But it's a whole lot more than probably speak to us because in his grace, he's not just suggested a day of rest, he's commanded it. And he's given this his people with this day to just stop running around like a chicken with its head cut off because almost every single person, almost every single person in this room is over committed and overextended. And God's saying, this is how I created the world to be. This is how I created it to be for human flourishing, to take a day of rest, to stop doing and just be. Have a day of rest and a day to worship and a day to recreate. But the Pharisees, again, they've twisted this. They've taken a blessing. They've turned it into a burden. They've invented these 39 different rules of how to keep the Sabbath and they forced those on everyone. This is how you keep the Sabbath. And so they turned this blessing of a day into a burden from a legalistic standpoint. Our problem today for many of us, though, is not that. It's that we've turned this blessing of a day into a burden from a licentious standpoint. Just treating it like any other day. Save maybe an hour for church if it's convenient. But then it's back to the ball fields and it's back to crazy amounts of homework. It's back to the office. It's back to the grind. Folks, God is saying, honor the Sabbath rightly Rest. Take a break. Your life is not going to fall off the train tracks if you rest for a little bit. God will hold your life together as you exercise faith in Him and rest. Turn it off for a minute. Slow down. Take a breather. Take some time to gather with the church. Take some time to Serve your neighbor, love your neighbor, break bread, be hospitable, have people in your homes. And so rest in him, trust what he says here, worship, serve, recreate, get the fit bed out, go for a walk, take a nap, play wiffle ball with your kids, go fly a kite, go fishing. Focus on Christ. Focus on His gospel. Learn to say no to some things so that you can say yes to better things. Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Have a heart disposition towards the sanctity of a day set aside for worship and service to the Lord. And if you can do that on your John Deere out in your front yard, relaxing, if that's relaxing for you, if that's a prayerful time for you, then go at it. It's not so much about the act as it is the attitude. My only request is that you please refrain from mowing in your tidy whities. (laughs) We want to love our neighbors. And so the first lesson from this dinner party is honor the Sabbath rightly. Don't be a legalistic, uncaring, pharisaical jerk. All right. But don't. Be a licentious. Take it or leave it. I'm smarter than God. I'll make my own playbook and my own way of doing things. You know, grace presumer. Don't be an antinomian. That's the $10 word there. Honor the Sabbath rightly. Like Jesus did. Serving this man. Healing this man. So that's lesson number one. Lesson number two. Take the back seat humbly. Okay, take the back seat humbly. Look at verse 7 with me. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so in, in that day, the way the culture worked is at a major event, a major banquet, the way they you know did the seating is they did that through like a, a ranking system based upon family and social status. And so the closest thing we might have today is an actual wedding service. So you've got the bride and the groom that are up here and then flowing out from them on each side are, you know, uh, groomsmen and bridesmaids. And often they're kind of put in a ranked order of closeness. So you've got the best man and, you know, on down. So in mine and Sarah's wedding... My best man was my dad and then had my brother and then I had my best friend, Dan, and then I had a college friend, Brendan, and then a couple of other folks uh, as well. And so Brendan down here, it would have been really weird for him to just come up and assume I'm going to stand right by Joe, you know, because he'd be taking my dad's place. He'd be taking the best man's place. So I'd have to say, Brendan, I love you, buddy. But no, this is the place for the best man. You move on down there. Or if my dad came in and he said, Dad, come on up here. I want you to sit. I want you to stand right beside me because you're my best man. And and so when Jesus is telling us this, you know, all these little details here, this is not he's not just giving social tips on a wedding or the way we should sit in an old school banquet. He's not t- t- teaching us to take the lowest seat um, so that we won't be embarrassed. And he's definitely not telling us to live out a fake humility. So that we'll get esteemed by others. Jesus hates the kind of pride that pretends to be humble. What Jesus is doing here with this object lesson. He's he's helping us to see that in the end. When everything is made right. When Christ returns. New heavens. New earth. In the end. The humble will be exalted. And the exalted will be humbled. In other words, the Pharisees who think they are good enough, they think that they are prominent enough that they have the pedigree, that they have the education such that they can take the best seat in God's eternal banquet of heaven. Jesus is saying, you're not even going to be there. But those who beat their chest and say, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. They will have the best seat in the house. Philip Ryken puts it like this. If there's any place at all for us at the eternal banquet, it is only by the grace of God. The only people who will be exalted at the final judgment are people who humble themselves before God, who know for sure that they are unworthy sinners and who therefore put their total trust in the mercy of Jesus Christ on the basis of His death on the cross. To go up to glory, we first have to go down in humility. And so, friend, without Christ, humble yourself before God. Let go of the pride that shackles you to thinking that you're good enough or that you could do enough that God would accept you. If that were true, Jesus died for nothing. God demands perfection. You're not perfect. None of us are. But Jesus came and was perfect for you. And offers you his life. And he paid for your sins through his death and resurrection. And so let go of your pride. Let go, brother. Humble yourself before God. Surrender to God. Wave the white flag of surrender. I cannot do it on my own. I need you, Christ. Receive him in all humility that you might go up to glory, adopted into the family of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, forgiven and given eternal life. And then, Christian brothers and sisters, let me ask you a couple of questions here. Do you still live that way? Do you still live in that level of humility? Do you still beat your chest? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or have you moved to a position of self-righteous judgmentalism? And of course, we're going to be like, no, that's a self-righteous answer. So check your hearts here. Let's check our hearts a little bit. Have you moved to a place where you would never dare say it out loud, but you just think that you're better? holier, more loved by God than certain groups of other people. Oh, praise God, I'm not like them. I don't do that stuff. Do you think that way? Do you live that way? Or even becoming judgmental on on, on just opinions about things. How could that person choose to school their children that way? Do they hate their kids? Do they want them to grow up to be pagans? How could that person vote for that political figure? How could someone eat that kind of food? It has GMOs and it's not organic. And I'm all for eating healthy. Let me get very specific here. Do you think that you are better than the rest of the world because you're an American? Do you think you matter more to God than anyone else in the world because you're American? Do you think God loves America more than He loves other countries? Do you think you're better off than other people because you live in Noensville and not in the Projects? Do you think that because of these things, you deserve a metaphorical, more honored seat because you're better than these others and you've done all this stuff for God and they haven't? The reality, as the Anglican J.C. Ryle put it, is that the Christian who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and His infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which He was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man because we bring nothing to the table except our sin and our wickedness. Jesus has paid everything. He lived a life of perfection that none of us have. He died the death that all of us have been condemned to die. He did it in our place as our substitute. And He rose to give us a gift we could never earn. Forgiveness of our sins. And so Jesus is the one who makes us holy and blameless before the Father. Not on the basis of what we did, on the basis of what he did. And so it's a gift. It's given. It's nothing we've done. So we have no right ever to walk with some sort of like swagger about ourselves, some sort of arrogance about ourselves. We didn't do anything to make ourselves born. We didn't do anything to make ourselves born in a certain place. We didn't really do anything to make ourselves actually born again. The spirit blows where it will. And God saves. We didn't do that. God did. And so the reality is that there shouldn't be, there really isn't, an, there's no such thing as an arrogant Christian who understands what being a Christian actually means. Those things can't grow in the same way dish together true christianity and arrogance it doesn't work humility marks the life of a true follower of christ listen again to what john read earlier philippians 2 so if there is any encouragement this is the apostle paul writing to the church at philippi if there's any encouragement in christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy are like you saying if you have any of this, even tiny bits, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, listen closely, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others And then he gives us an example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Jesus is God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Get this God of the universe humbling himself and becoming a human and then dying on the cross, a criminal's death. right? Therefore, so humil- humiliation, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And so verse 5 of that passage again, look at that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is how we're to live, with the mind of Christ, humbly, in humility. And so that's lesson one and two. Our final lesson from this dinner party begins with Jesus just continuing to offend every single person at the party. So look at that with me in verse 12. He just talked to all the people that were invited. Now he's going to talk to the host. Verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is actually the first mention on Jesus's lips of the resurrection in the book of Luke. Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so this is this guy here, you know, Jesus is continuing to kind of talk about humility and it's not about social snobbery and exalting oneself and just think about oneself. Someone who pleases God has friends on both ends of the social man constructed spectrum that we you know, have in our society. And so verse 15, somebody comes along. And he's like, Whoa, this is electric in here. Let me try to diffuse the situation. I'm going to say something everybody will agree to. Hey, blessed is everyone who's going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And in a lot of ways, Jesus was kind of like, sit down, I'm not done. And so verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And so in the ancient Near East, the way invitations worked were, again, not that dissimilar from the way wedding invitations work today. You send out a reserve the date, all right? But they went ahead and did the RSVP with the reserve the date. And then you send out, hey, it's ready, all right? So y'all come. And so these folks have RSVP'd. And then it's time to come and they're start, they start backing out. And they've got some legit excuses to save face. But if they really wanted to be there, they could work around these things. The bottom line is that they don't want to be there. All right. And what Jesus is doing here, again, this is just a metaphor he's using as he teaches through parables. So this is a parable he's teaching through. And the the point is that these people don't want to come to the eternal banquet of heaven. All right. The book of Revelation calls it the marriage supper of the lamb. They don't want to be there because they don't love the groom, Jesus, and they don't love the bride, the church. And so verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master, and then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still, there's more room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highway, highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Drop mic. Jesus is just going, I mean, he's dropping the boom on these guys in love that they'll wake up because he's saying, listen, the way you're living right now, you're not going to be at the banquet. Your, your concerns of the world have corrupted you. You are concerned about high seats and being seen in the world and having social status and social prominence, and you're going to miss the banquet. And that's a word to all of us, and especially my friends in here who don't yet know Jesus. Without Christ, you'll miss the banquet. I mean, it's, we all deserve to miss the banquet, every single one of us, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled against him. We've all committed treason against the king of the universe. We've sinned. We're separated from holy God because we're sinful. But the kindness of God. Is that He sent Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We can't live perfect. Jesus did. We've sinned. We deserve to be justly punished. Jesus took our place. And to prove that God accepts that, He rose again. But absent from faith in what Christ has done for us, the Bible teaches that you'll miss the banquet. And so I plead with you who don't know Christ, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Join the banquet. It's going to be full. Christ is rescuing sinners from the highways, from the hedges, from the streets, from the lanes. I've seen it. It's me. He rescued me. And He's the banquet's going to be full such that Revelation 7 will be true. There will be a great multitude that no one will be able to number from every nation, all tribes, all languages, all people groups gathered around the throne in worship of Jesus saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So come in. Come in. There's room. There's room and Jesus is saying, come in. Like Christianity, some people are like, it's so exclusive. And in one sense, it is. It's only for those who repent and believe the gospel. But it's so inclusive. There's no prerequisites. There's no pedigree. There's no, you know, you've got to be of this type of person. It's just belief. It's just faith. It's open to all who believe. Anyone. No prerequisites. So come in. And that come in, that's the application for the the church, for us, for those of us who believe. For, For those of you who are not yet Christians, the application is come in. For those of you who are Christians, the application is to be the servant of verse 23. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. That my house may be filled. Now, that verse has been abused by the church in history. You look at the conquistadors. They come in, they come into an area. They don't even speak the language. If you want to be alive and not dead... Then say you love Jesus. What? Kill them, all right? That's what the conquistadors did. That's how this this verse has been abused. We the church has an ugly past. There's no denying that. The church has a beautiful past, and one always too. There's no denying that. But that's an ugly side of it. This compelled here is just it's pleading. It's pleading with one another to love and to serve and to share. And to plead with people to receive the gospel message for the glory of God and the salvation of their soul. And so there's a place for just inviting people to church. We've been talking about Easter, VBS, bring, you know, invite five people. We've been talking about that. That is an important thing. That's a good thing. There's a place for just inviting people to come. There's a place for that. But the idea of compelling people to come here is not just, hey, y'all come. All right? It's not so much a come and see as it is a go and be. Be the incarnation of Christ in an area, in your workplace. That's why in verse 23 it says go out to the highways and the hedges. So it involves going. It involves going across the street to your neighbor with the gospel. Not to argue, but to compel to plead, to love, to serve. It's going across the school hallway, past the lockers, to a classmate, to compel, to plead, to love. It's going across the cubicle at work to compel and to plead and to love. And that's why Go is on our wall out there. We exist to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same because we believe in what Jesus has said that he is the singular way, the life, the truth. No one comes to the father except through him. We believe Jesus. We take him at his word. And so we worship to we exist to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. And we do that by gathering for worship, growing in groups, serving the church and the community and going to our neighbors and the nations with the gospel. And so go open your mouth and go. Honoring the Sabbath rightly, right? Taking the back seat humbly and compelling others to join you at the party. This is what disciples do. Let's be disciples. Let's pray. Father, help us as a church to show forth the glory. And the grace of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. To lift high Jesus. To not hold up a particular way of life and boast in that. To not hold up a morality and boast in that. We don't boast in any of these things. To not hold up uh, any anything that we might hold up and, 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 and seek to glory in or boast in or invite people to know we we hold up we boast in we invite people to the person and work of jesus this is what you've called us to so as the church help us to live that way honoring the sabbath being humble going for those in this room who don't yet know you draw them to yourself father save them by the power of your Holy Spirit working inside of them stir be a pebble in their shoe that annoys them and they can't get away from till they turn and see your grace and see your mercy that was shed for all people and that you hold out to any who would repent and believe Help us to embody that, even as we celebrate and remember right now your sacrifice on the cross so that we could be forgiven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.